The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this week is Jim Mascara. Uh, he is an author. His book is called Escaping Oz, Navigating the Crisis. He is also a principal at Sentinel Consulting. And welcome to the show, Jim. Jordan, thanks a lot for having me today. So let's just start with a little bit of your background and how was it that you came to write this book? But give us your background before we get to the book. Well, I'm uh, one of those uh, immigrant stories to the United States. Uh, my father and mother immigrated here uh, with me and my sister uh, a long time ago. And so I grew up uh, in St. Louis, Missouri. I'm originally from uh, Panama City, Panama. Uh, collegiately, I pursued uh, a couple of degrees in industrial engineering. Uh, professionally, after that, I went into the uh, telecommunications world, held a variety of jobs and capacities in, in that field. And Believe it or not, I guess it was around 1987, I, I started really studying a little bit more about the markets, was deep in the middle of the 1987 you know, Black Monday crash, uh, which actually ended up benefiting me because of some positions that I had at the time with euro dollars. Uh, and then that kind of kind of stayed with me for you know, a long time. Uh, I acquired a Series 3 license uh, in the early 90s, and probably around 2007 to 2009, I began publishing a... Um, a newsletter. I called it the Sentinel Financial Report and used that information then to put a book together late 2010, early 2011, uh, that was called Escaping Oz, Protecting Your Wealth During the Financial Crisis, which is the predecessor of the book that you just mentioned. And um, then the successor to that, Escaping Oz, Navigating the Crisis, was published last year. What is Sentinel Consulting and what do you do for Sentinel Consulting? Sentinel Consulting is a business, Jordan, that's specifically targeted to uh, small businesses. Uh, after the 2008 financial crisis, I realized that there was going to that the banking system was going to change uh, significantly in this country, particularly from the standpoint of smaller enterprises acquiring credit. So, really, a niche business has has really developed over the course of the last few years with a lot of uh, what we would call internet lending platforms. Some of those are beneficial, some of those are not. Uh, so, what I do is I consult with small businesses and helping them with acquiring financing, not necessarily on the startup phase, but mostly businesses that have at least some maturity about them. Um, one of the things I see as a, as a small business consultant is that a lot of these businesses, they don't have a good capital acquisition plan, particularly once they start to kind of pick up and grow a little bit. So then they, they end up doing a lot of what I call piecemeal financing, and that piecemeal financing really can get them into trouble. So the other side of the business is to help businesses with debt restructuring. Uh, in the market where I am, I see a lot of businesses that find themselves in court 
uh, due to civil litigation as a result of debts that you know they're they're not able to handle at, the, at this point in time. So uh, that's a very very unproductive path uh, for both debtors and creditors in the civil courts because the civil courts typically they they don't, there's no uh, legal points of law that that get discussed there. It's simply a matter of do you owe the money or not. And so if it gets to that point. Uh, a lot of most of the debtors, if they get to that point, uh, they're going to pay a lawyer. Uh, more than likely, the outcome's not going to be favorable to them. Uh, many businesses surprisingly uh, ignore those petitions, and then so they lose by default in court. And of course, you know that sits on their record. Uh, obviously, it would affect FICO scores and any future uh, borrowing that they might do. So I try to help them with that as well. So, so you're helping the business restructure, so it's a win-win for the creditor and the debtor, and and allow. The business to get uh, financing in a kind of very tight banking environment is that the idea? Yeah, I mean, it, it's if if you look at it from the standpoint of you know if you're a really really large entity in this country and you go through a restructuring, well, they they have many more resources at their disposal. Small businesses doesn't do uh, you know doesn't have those resources. So what I try to do is is be an intermediary in that process to hopefully get them some financing and hopefully uh, restructure debts with their creditors. So let's get back to the book. So the book is called Escaping Oz, Navigating the Crisis. We're going to get into some detail about it, but just kind of give us the overall why you wanted to do this book and why it's necessary for people to read it in, in today's economic environment. Education is something that was stressed to me, uh, Jordan, from a very, very young age. I mentioned that uh, we're an immigrant family uh, from Panama. Uh, my father didn't was not a, a, of any means when he was growing up and so he through his education it allowed him to transport his family to the United States and and obviously create a better life for ourselves uh, education is something that I see that is missing uh, for Americans particularly with regards to economics which a theme of the book or I guess a prevalent theme of the book is that intersection of politics and economics and, and part of the thing with understanding more about economics, it's not so much understanding the microeconomics that you might have had as, as a student, maybe in high school or college, but really understanding a little bit more about what I call the fundamentals. And, and having an engineering background, for me, fundamentals is very, very important because you, you don't, you're you not going to learn calculus until you learn algebra. And it's kind of the same thing with, with economics. There's a lot of things that get thrown about uh, on the news shows and I think that most people probably can't decipher exactly, you know, what the, some of the terminology means, you know, why certain things occurred. So if you look at two aspects of the book, one, that it needs to be very, very educational to get most Americans on board to understand some of the root causes of a lot of the problems. But number two, because of that intersection with politics and economics, it's really, really important from this from a civic standpoint, because, uh, you know, and, and right now we're in the middle of an election cycle. And one of the things that I think is really important, not just from a presidential perspective, but you know, on a state and even local perspective, is to understand what some of the candidates are proposing and why, and you know, and why it may or may not make sense. So, so two aspects of the book: one, educational; the other one, again, understanding you know that influence of politics and economics colliding. Very good. Right, we're going to start at the beginning here. So, uh, your first section is kind of setting the scene for the later parts, um, and you talk about the origin of our problems. So, just briefly tell us. What is the origin of the economic problem you're talking about in the book? Well, again, if you want to start with the fundamentals, fundamentally, uh, we have to think about, well, what is it that 
what is it that's the cause of a lot of our problems? And, and number one is a four-letter word that's spelled D-E-B-T, debt. Um, and I, I have a quote. I actually have quotes at the beginning and end of every chapter in the book. And the first quote in chapter one is origin of the problem is, it says, quote, so you think that money is the root of all evil. Have you ever asked what is the root of all money? And that, I think, is a really important point to st uh, start from because we, I, I don't know how many people really ask themselves, yeah, we have money, and, and for most people, money today is not the, the, the green pieces of paper or the coin that they might have in their wallet, but it's really some form of credit that resides in cyberspace. But you know, why do we need money in the first place? And it really comes down to something called the double coincidence of wants. You know, I have something that you want, and, and, maybe, and you want that. So we both have the same wants, but how do we transact that? Well, in in a very base method, we would simply barter. We would say, okay, uh, and I give the example of in the book of a bicycle that you know one kid had a bicycle that the other kid wanted. Well, what did the kid with the bicycle want from the first kid? Well, he wanted baseball cards. So they they arrange for an exchange of X number of baseball cards, you know, for the bicycle. Um, obviously. Barter transactions, if you had to do that for every single transaction in the economy, it would be incredibly cumbersome. So what happened over the course of time was is that there was an intermediary uh, called money that actually then took that place of, of the barter transaction. And one of the things that I talk about in the book is how the definition of money has changed over time. And in 1968, Webster's Dictionary talked about that money was a standard piece of gold, silver, copper, nickel, et cetera. And it, the government authority stamped it and, and we would use it as a medium exchange and a measure of value. A more contemporary definition says that it's just something that's accepted as a medium of exchange, a measure of value, or a means of payment. So there's been an altering, if you will, of what we understand is the definition of money. And that's really, really important because you know once we separated ourselves from that definition, it made other things possible with respect to you know the expansion of credit. And I give several examples, Jordan, in that first chapter where I talked about what may have represented uh, money in the United States or even the colonial area. And and one of the one of the most probably important events early in the country's history economically was the country issuing something called a continental and that was to fight the war effort well the continental got issued and uh part of the reason was okay well we need to pay troops we needed to buy supplies etc whatever whatever the case may be but when the government issued so many of those continentals and the and they said that the continental was worth x which x was being a um, a spanish mill dollar well when too many of those got issued over the course of time the value of a continental uh, became significantly diluted. So, you know, at the end of that process, you know, you had to ask yourself, well, would you want to issue a, uh, would you want to have a continental or, you know, would you want to have the Spanish mill dollar? And that, fact, gives, that was the phrase, right? It's not worth the continental. I think that's exactly right. right. And, and that gives rise to something called Gresham's law, which is that bad money drives out the good. And so, and so we had different instances of that. Uh, even during the civil war, there were some United States notes that got issued. I talk about the first instance anyway, that I mentioned in the book was about central banking arriving in the United States more more accurately now, as we understand central banking, which that's the um, that's the Federal Reserve. So, I mean, for example, we had we're on the gold standard for many years. In 1971, Nixon took us off the gold standard. What was the economic impact 
of going off the gold standard that we'd been on for so many years. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because you know one of the th probably the, the 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 single most thing that probably people remember Richard Nixon uh, about was was you know Watergate, but you know I postulated in the book that it he, that probably a, a bigger <laughs> impactful thing that he did was on August 15th, 1971, which he effectively killed what was called the Bretton Woods Agreement. And just a real quick digression, the Bretton Woods Agreement was something that was created after World War II by the victorious powers that said, okay, we're going to have a de facto um, reserve currency for the world. It's going to be the U.S. dollar. And it's going to be that U.S. dollar is going to be fixed to, you know, X number of lira, X number of yen, X number of pounds, et cetera, German marks. And, oh, and by the way, if you, a foreign country, if you have, uh, if you have accumulated uh, U.S. dollars in your reserve accounts, you can come to the window of the United States and exchange that for gold. Well, the problem was is that when the United States embarked on a more expansionary fiscal policy in the 1960s, you know, due to the Great Society, um, the um, this the, is the guns and butter, right? People talk yeah, exactly. about guns and butter. Yeah, right? guns and butter. So now all of a sudden you were accumulating all these dollars overseas, so they wanted to repatriate that with gold uh, domestically. And so it was draining the supply of gold from the United States. Nixon realized that and then shut that off. So essentially what that did is it, it killed this, this agreement that had been in place you know, for what, uh, 30 plus, around 30 years, actually 25 years. And so it, cha it, it irretrievably changed, you know, the mechanism of, of how currencies were related to one another, which, which is something that you, st you see in the world today and, and really is a problem that, uh, th that I think will take on greater magnitude as we move further into this crisis. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Jim Mascara. Uh, his book is called Escaping Oz, Navigating the Crisis. You can find out more about Jim and his books at jimmascara.com, spelled M-O-S-Q-U-E-R-A.com. We'll be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Jim Mascara. Uh, he's got a book out called Escaping Oz, Navigating the Crisis. You can find out more about him and his books at jimmascara.com. Welcome back to the show, Jim. Thank you, Jordan. So we just got off the gold standard with what Nixon did, and then that created inflation, 
So w tell us the, the, what people don't know about inflation uh, that was caused by that. Well, I think probably people are really, really familiar with inflation and, and, and the effect that they notice of inflation is, are, are the prices of something going up. Uh, probably what they're le least familiar with is some, is a concept called deflation. Um, and deflation is, is really a difficult concept to understand because it's a monetary phenomenon, but it's also a psychological phenomenon as well. And the last time that we had a sustained period of deflation in this country was during the Great Depression and the, you know, the prices of many assets fell. And so one of the things that uh, one of the things I talk about in the book are my economic laws and economic law number one is well credit equals confidence so you have to have you know willing lender willing willing borrower and, and then the transaction occurs you know that can create a lot of inflation especially the way our money is structured today so what happens on the deflationary process is that that potentially then can start to unwind uh, when the value of assets falls, uh, you know, maybe the, the debtor has become, we were talking earlier about small business debtor becomes too stretched. Uh, in the case of the housing crisis a few years ago, uh, there were problems with mortgage-backed securities. You know, there was obviously less certainty. That confidence went away. And so whenever that happens, there needs to be a liquidation, if you will, or, or restructuring that then causes asset sales to um, you know, to replenish the coffers, if you will. And so, so some would say we're in a deflationary period now that many commodity prices have dropped a lot, and particularly overseas, and trade is way down, asset prices and a lot of things have dropped. Do you, do you think we're more in a deflationary period now or an inflationary one? We are definitely in a deflationary period, and, and the best indicator of that, Jordan, are the actions of the Federal Reserve and other central banks across the world. And we, the, the Federal Reserve Bank in this country's assets uh, assets now have increased over $4 trillion. So historically, somebody would say, well, wait a second, if the Fed does all this and is increasing the monetary base, that we should have this raging inflation. Well, the, the fact of the matter is we don't. And other measures that the Fed looks at for deflation, like the personal consumption expenditure, you know, they, they're not able to generate the inflation that they really want to. Now, there's other things they potentially could do that they haven't done yet. Um, but everything that they've done so far, I mean, you, you have to say if you're giving the Fed a score, it probably wouldn't be a really good one. And this is true around the world. I mean, Japan has been battling deflation for about 25 years. They're buying up every asset in sight and still not get, able to get the inflation going. Europe is in negative interest rates as well. So this is a global deflationary trend is what you're saying. Is that right? It's absolutely that. And and, and if, you, if you think about it, it kind of goes back to the, some of the things that we were talking about earlier with regards to, you know, the currencies now floating against one another and, and some of the currency wars that have been really in existence since Nixon took us off the gold standard. So traditionally, I mean, like in the Depression, we've had times of deflation before. What do, do central banks, both the central bank and uh, the federal government do uh, to get out of deflationary spirals? Well, the first thing they try to do is one of the things we've seen, which is changes in short-term interest rates, right? So the discount rate has been lowered many times. Uh, I, right now, I think it's like a quarter of a percent, maybe a little bit higher. Fed tried to increase that a little bit, I guess, late December of last it hasn't year. It worked. I mean, they've had pretty much zero no, no. percent rates for you, over eight that, years now. That's right. It, it hasn't worked. And the other thing was, you know, an, a tremendous intervention in the treasury market to, to try to control long-term rates, tremendous inter intervention in the mortgage-backed security market to try to spur housing demand. So that's what I was saying earlier. None of those things have worked. And probably more telling is uh, something called the velocity of money. 
which is, you know, you look at a country's GDP and then you divide that by the monetary base or what's called a high powered money that can get into the economy. And that velocity has been going down. And that's a very, very damaging thing for an economy because that just means that less money is circulating, is, is changing hands. And Part so that, that is psychological, right? In other words, people don't feel an urge to go buy something if they think the price is going to go down. That's kind of what in Japan, there's no kind of urgency to rush out and beat price increases. And that's why the velocity of money is so low. That That's absolutely right. And so that, so that talks about what we said earlier, which was the psychological component of deflation. One's a monetary component, but the other one's psychological, like you said. Uh, I think that price may be lower later or, or you know, and, and the other is, I don't think I need that thing that I was buying, you know, 10 years ago. It's maybe not that important to me. Yeah. Yeah. So you, the next chapter you have is on cycles. So basically you're saying there are inflationary cycles and deflationary cycles. We've gone from an inflationary to deflationary cycle. Is that where we stand now? That That's certainly part of it. Uh, you know, one of the things that I, I wanted to emphasize with respect to the cycles were uh, business cycles. So I talked about Kondratiev waves or K waves and really probably around the year 2000 may have marked the peak of the Kondratiev cycle. And then you're, you know, you're entering what's called wave four of that, which is the winter part. I also talk about Elliott waves, which, uh, the practitioner probably most famous for that right now is a guy named Robert Prechter. And, you know, we're, we're in a deep, well, we're, we're in a decreasing wave or a contraction wave, uh, with respect I mean, to that. Supposedly, if you looked at the Kondratiev and the Elliott waves, we should have had a tremendous crash Years ago, like 20 years ago or something like that. Well, right? I, I mean, I, I would argue that probably like 2000 is the end of that. And, and I, I do show some examples in my book of what, you know, during this, quote, recovery that we've had, how much weaker it has been. And, and those things are more indicative of, in Elliott wave terms, it would be called a B wave, which, you know, that's the first reaction wave after the first fall, which kind of gives the impression that, that things are moving along better than they are. Now, don't discount what we talked about earlier, which is all of the central bank intervention that has kind of uh, ameliorated, if you will, the fall that we would have had. We, you know, we haven't really. Uh, we were talking about earlier about business restructuring. We, the economy, never really had a chance to restructure, and part of that, obviously, was the great intervention, you know, by by fiscal spending, and then of course, what the central banks are doing. So you're saying it would have been better if you if you're a believer in these waves, both the Kondratiev wave and the Elliott wave. Uh, some would say it's inevitable, there's nothing you can do about it. Some would say you know it's coming and you should do things to counteract it, which is what the government did. They had a massive stimulus program uh, and the Federal Reserve quantitative easing and so on to try to offset the deflationary impact of the downturn both in 2000 and 2008. You're, you're saying that was the wrong thing to do. It's better to kind of let the wave wash things out and you come back quicker. Is that what you're saying? I mean, the pain that will be felt eventually as a result of the, you know, the ultimate restructuring, it, it's kind of like if, you know, if I had a problem with a credit card and you were my creditor and I had maxed out the first credit card and I said, well, Jordan, you know what, why don't you just issue me another credit card? I think I'll, okay, so here's another one. And then a couple of years later, we do the same thing. So those things, that, that's essentially what's been happening. So when the eventual restructuring occurs, you know, the process will be far more painful. And, but even more importantly, since, and I want to keep referencing this because we're in election year, the that intersection of politics and economics, people will be looking for that politician that will bring them this salvation. And unfortunately, that's that politician is not going to surface. And more dangerously, as 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 you saw in 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 the Weimar Republic in Germany in the 1920s and 30s, it tends to give rise to demagoguery. And so so that's kind of the political danger that you have when economies become so stressed. So what would be another example? I mean I guess 
Weimar Republic and, and World War II would be an example, but even throughout history, we had a similar upwave and then a, a major downwave. Uh, you know, what were the political and economic implications of that? Because people don't want to be there for the downwave; they want to get out of it. So, what are they willing to do to get out of the downwave? Well, that 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 <laughs> therein lies the sixty-four thousand dollar question, and those that's some of the things that I talk about at the very end of the book. The problem now that you have is because of the way uh, our monetary system is structured, and because we rely so much upon credit, and because it's so easy to create credit. You know, obviously, just electronically, um, you know, out of thin air, that as, as a central bank can do. You know, the I, I give the example of of, of a blimp. Uh, that you know, if if you if you think of the Great Depression as a beach ball that got deflated, what you have right now is some deflation that has to occur, and that that deflation is the size of a blimp, no longer is a beach ball. So there's obviously there's significant pain that's associated with the deflation, and politically, I mean, I understand why some of the things have been done that were done, and they're following Keynesian policy, like you know, it's Richard Nixon says, hey, we're all Keynesians now, and and I think that's the dominant economic policy that you've seen through time. Will that will that uh, that thesis, if you will, of Keynesianism survive? That that remains to be seen. So uh, basically, you're saying uh, this is the biggest uh, buildup of debt in history, and therefore the downside is going to be the biggest in history. Absolutely, yeah. There's no question about it. It's it, it, again, just use use the metaphor of the blimp now and the beach ball for the Great Depression. And, and there's nothing any politicians can do. What if all the the central banks of the world, all the governments of the world, agreed on what they should do about it. You're saying there's nothing they can do. It's inevitable to have the big, the big downer. Well, that's what they've been trying desperately avoid, right? Since 2008, 2009, and so they've done certain things to try to counteract that. You, you enumerated what those were earlier. I think there's some other things that they'll probably try in the future because they realize that some of the things that they're doing right now aren't working. I mean, you, you, you indicated that yourself. And I think a lot of people can see that. And, and again, I go back to the political aspect because, you know, one of the things that you saw with Occupy Wall Street and, and other movements is that there's this growing income inequality. It's like, okay, well, the central banks and governments have done X, Y, and Z, but why isn't Main Street benefiting from it? So, so again, that's, that's the wild card, Jordan, that you have in all this is, that is kind of the unknown effect of politics. In so how, how does that actually work? When you have the central bank pumping all this money in, the reason you get income inequality is because assets rise, stock prices, real estate rises, which tends to benefit wealthier people more than average people. Is that the reason why you have this income inequality? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book is these these what I call these investment cones. So um, the money, or in this case, the credit, tends to flow into what have we seen historic? We saw housing, we saw stock market, bond market, obviously an, an incredibly large um, bubble right now. So you look at those three areas. Well, Main Street hasn't necessarily benefited from all that, and that, that, again, that's the political problem: is that how how do you, uh, if you're a central banker, say, okay, I'm, we're working all these things, but I, I realize you people on Main Street aren't benefiting from the same thing. Again, it creates vacuums for then people to come in and say, politicians say, hey, you know what? I've got a solution for you. We're gonna we're gonna do this or that. And you're saying there are no solutions. There are no solutions as you see them today. Uh, I think they're going to try some other things. We can talk about what some of the things that they might try. Uh, but eventually, the, the economy needs to restructure itself. How it does that and how painful they want to make it is, is a question to be seen. But basically, you're saying that by delaying the medicine in a certain way, it makes it a bigger uh, crash, I think is probably the right word, later. Is that right? 
Yeah, there's just it, the the avoidance of of the reparation now will cause more of a problem later. And when has that been true in history? When have been another similar time to that? You know, I don't know that we've had anything like that because uh, I don't know that we've ever had anything uh, that is of this scope and scale. You know, particularly with uh, all of these econ worldwide economies intertwined with you know, floating currencies, with massive central bank intervention. You, you mentioned Japan earlier, where you know not only are they in the the bond market, but they're in the stock market. You have negative interest rates. I mean, this really, really is uh, you know kind of the the Wizard of Ozland, where you know every, you, you seem to have these magical pronouncements of what's going to happen, and you know nothing's changing. Very good. All right. Well, we're getting. Plenty scared, which is good. And then at the end, we're going to solve it all for people, what they should do. So we'll take a break here. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Jim Mascara. Uh, he is a principal at Sentinel Consulting, which uh, helps small businesses restructure their loans. His book is called Escaping Oz, Navigating the Crisis. You can find out more at jimmascara.com, which is spelled M-O-S-Q-U-E-R-A.com. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour, Jim Muscara. Uh, his book is called Escaping Oz, Navigating the Crisis. You can find out more about him and his book at jimmuscara.com. Welcome back to the show, Jim. Thank you, Jordan. So basically, you said we've kind of built up the biggest debt bubble uh, in history. We've got a deflationary wave, both the Kondratiev wave and the Elliott wave, which is much bigger than any central bank or any politician. Certainly, the Federal Reserve is part of it. You have a whole chapter on the Federal Reserve, as you called, the supreme wizard. What powers do they have and what powers do they not have in the circumstance we're in now? Well, and I, I and I kind of tried to base the book after the you know the the Wizard of Oz concept, and in the Wizard of Oz, if you remember, you know Toto reached or you know around the curtain, pulled it back, and then you know we we saw the wizard to be you know an ordinary man, and that's kind of what I want to try to convey in the book is the, the the Fed doesn't have this magic dust that they sprinkle on the economy. Um, and there's no manna from heaven that comes down from them either. And I, I think they've kind of built this aura around them. And, and I, there's, a, there's a little quote that I have in the book that I actually took from Bob Woodward's um, biography about former chairman Greenspan that he called Maestro. And I, I thought it was really interesting in that he, 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 he related a, uh, uh, an incident with uh, 
Mr. Greenspan, where he asked his wife to be, you know, TV news journalist Andrea Mitchell uh, to marry him. <laughs> and, you know, and, and I'll, I'll quote what Woodward said. They said his verbal obscurity and caution were so ingrained that Mitchell didn't even know that she asked her to marry him. And the, the point I was making is if if this was a person that was, you know, this master supreme wizard of the economy and somehow his girlfriend, wife to be, couldn't decipher a marriage proposal, you know, why should we expect that, you know, we're going to get any great guidance from from this person? And, and, I, and I think that it, it, it happened with Bernanke. Obviously, it's, it's happening right now with Yellen. I mean, everybody just sits with what, bated breath to hear what this organization is going to do. And in the end, my, my point is, is that, I, you know, and they're proving it now that everything they do is, is really not going to not going to be of any great benefit. And that's unfortunate because, again, we're, we're everyone's following the wizard. Um, and it's, it's unfortunately, again, when, when, when Dorothy realized who the wizard was and the wizard said, Hey, I'm just an ordinary man. I'm just pushing these buttons and and pulling these levers behind the curtain. If I were to make you the Federal Reserve chairman, would that be different? Would you have, you'd be more transparent and be able to do things that the current chairman is not able to do? It's not even that I would do more. I, I, in fact, I would probably not probably, I would certainly do less. I mean, let's think about what the Fed's original charter was there. They were there to be a bank of banks, right? They were there to provide liquidity. I mean, they came about <clears throat> ostensibly because there were all these bank runs in, you know, 1907 and so forth. And they came about in around 1913, you know, the, the creation on Jekyll Island. So what their charter is today uh, Jordan is so far a deviation from what their original charter was. And of course, there's people probably listening to this now that say, well, wait a second, Jim, why do we need a central bank after all? So, I mean, that's another argument. But assuming that you do need a central bank, there was never anything in their charter that said that they needed to do everything they're doing today. Yeah, they're supposedly the lender of last resort is what they talked about at the time. That's exa- exactly right. I mean, they were they were a source of ultimate liquidity. And because the worst, you know, the, one of the worst things that can happen in an economy is what? Is to have a bank run. You know, so if you have the, the, the Fed there as a backstop for all that, that promotes an incredible amount of confidence in the system. But what they do now is, I mean, that they're doing something completely different than when they were originally intended. Now, at the moment, there's a lot of concern, particularly in Europe, about some of the like the big German banks, like Deutsche Bank, some of the Italian banks being very weak, and that the European Central Bank, which is the Fed of Europe, is not really in a position to take care of them. What do you think might happen with these weak banks in Europe? Great, great question, right? Because we saw what happened in Cyprus, right? They had the bail-in, yeah. and so some of the savers, of course, got punished for that. Um, you know, Germany uh, ostensibly might be the backstop for all this, but Angela Merkel is facing uh, you know significant political headwinds in in her country when her countrymen don't necessarily want you know a bailout of, of a southern European bank. Um, of course, as you mentioned, Deutsche Bank has a lot of problems on its own. So uh, this could be uh, not could be it is an existential crisis. In fact, I just wrote about this uh, an article about this. This is a big time existential crisis for the entire European Union. You know, right now, probably on, on greater life support are the Italian banks. So what happens when you have a, a large Italian bank or banks, plural, that begin to fail? Will the ECB step in? I mean, the ECB, what they did this last time, this last time being in Cyprus, was they floated this trial balloon. They said, okay, you know what? Rather than throwing a bunch of taxpayer money at this, let's see if the bank could bail itself out through a bail-in. So they ran that experiment. It succeeded, I guess, if you want to use that word. So that might be the next thing that gets tried. Obviously, when that happens, the the political fallout from that will be tremendous. I mean, what happened in that case was people with money, deposits over the deposit limit pretty much lost their money. It happened to be a lot of Russian 
uh, oligarchs, but basically lost their money. Could they Correct. do the same kind of thing in Italy or Germany? I, I, that's what I'm saying. That's the blueprint. They've already tried that. So that's the blueprint, the trial balloon. Let's see how that works. Oh, it, it seemed to work. Why not try it in another place? <laughs> okay. Well, if you're a Russian oligarch, you didn't think it worked too well. No, you didn't. Now, you have a whole chapter in what you call Wall Street and Main Street. So in this volatile environment now, it seems as though things are being run more for Wall Street than Main Street. And that's why you're getting this kind of political reaction. Is there a better way to, to have the balance between Wall Street and Main Street be? Boy, that's a great question. I, I, I don't know that I have a, a perfect answer for that. But uh, again, I, I think just due to some of the imbalances that you have in, in your monetary system, the great intervention that you have on the part of central banks, uh, you know, the government. And, and here's another problem with that is that, you know, we've placed a lot of burdens on government to solve our economic problems, which, again, to me, there's, and there's a chapter I have on government. I don't know that that's necessarily the, the role for government or even the best role for government. So then you put government in the hand of picking winners, which you could say, well, if you're in the 90% right now, you'd say, well, wait a second. I think We think the government has picked uh, Wall Street to be a winner in this whole thing. And so I, I would I would advocate that as, as if, if you pull back the reins a little bit on um, what government should be doing, what central banks should be doing, some of those things will correct themselves albeit with a significant amount of pain. There's going to be pain anyway, you're saying. It's just a matter of... Because the people who are on Wall Street and their special interests can protect themselves against pain much more than the average person. Yeah, and and let me... Since we're talking about government, or let me, let me just add another little subtext here. And that has to do with, you know, uh, our tax policy. You know, our tax code in this country, I don't even know how many pages, is very, very complicated, right? And... The, the way the, the way a lot of lobbying works, you know, whether it's from Wall Street or other companies, it's it's in it's trying to massage or attack the tax code for the benefit of the person doing the lobbying. So the more complex and labyrinthine this tax code is, is uh, the easier it is to have you know, the influence of lobbyists or other third parties try to massage it to their to their benefit. You know, we in, in the last presidential debate, you had one party attacking. They're saying, well, wait a second, you have, you know, you use this net operating loss and now you've got uh, you potentially didn't pay taxes for 20 years. And, and the reality is that net operating loss isn't just the purview of, of, of billionaires. I mean, that's used by small business. I mean, I see that on small businesses that I look at. So, yeah. but, but again, the more complex you make things, the more opportunity there is there for abuse. I mean, there have been a lot of proposals to go to a simple flat tax, have your tax on a postcard, no credits, no deductions. Do you think that would be a helpful thing to do? It would be very helpful, but the the likelihood of that of that occurring, I think, is small right now because you have you have a lot of hands in that pie, you know, and and the hands that are in that pie don't want to let go. I mean, I I do my own taxes, and I, I'm I'm guided by a, 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 a some tax software, and every once in a while something will pop in, it'll say, well, you know, if you're this category and you did this on a Wednesday and you were born in the month of July and you know your hair color is is brown, then we allow you to take this tax. So I mean, you can see how the tax code has just been just massaged and you know tailored to fit you know a, you know a special interest here a lobbyist there and so yeah i mean you you could solve a lot of problems with that but i just i is there the political will to do that i i don't know i don't think so right now so you have a section of the book called preparing our escape so we're we now know the situation we're in so the beginning of that is dealing with investor psychology uh, in the um, stock market, in real estate, and other kinds of things, how can investor psychology change, and how can you profit when psychology changes? 
Well, I think, uh, you know, investor psychology, one, the, the main theme there is, is that investors think that they use the, the, the large part of their brain, you know, the cerebral cortex, that rational part. I even put a, a picture of Mr. Spock in there because, um, you know, the efficient market hypothesis, what people are taught in school, is like, yeah, you know, everything's very rational and logical and so forth. But the reality is, is that investors tend to use the small part of their brain. And the small part of the brain is a more emotional uh, primal part of the brain, and that tends to induce a lot of you know trend following and hurting, and that produces even you know larger bubbles you know that that, that we're in right now. Um, so step one is to, and this is very very difficult, and I'm, and I'm saying this probably to to people that would find this very very challenging, but I would also make this comment to investment advisors that you know try to be a little less emotional, if you will, about, you know, some of the things that are being done for their investment clients and a little bit more rational. And I, I think that when you eliminate some of that hurting function that you've seen uh, over the course, I mean, and really I take it back even to 1982, um, it'll tend to smooth out some of those things. But trend influence is very, very um, prevalent. Are you saying that the solution for investors is to be contrarian when things are you know, really doing very well that you want to be selling? When things are very depressed, you want to be buying. That that would seem to be the rational way to deal with these emotional swings. I, I would say so. Yeah, I mean, there's and you know, there's there's a whole there's a whole thought process around you know contrarian investing. You know, when you know when you have the American Association of Individual Investors, when that percentage you know bullishness is very very high, what it also tells you is that there's fewer people that then need to be converted to being bullish, right? So if 90% of investors are bullish, that means there's only 10% that are not. So that's a smaller pool of people that need to be convinced, you know, to join the trend. So I, I would say contrarian investing, you know, especially now, you know, when, when, when you're at so, some of the extremes that you are, would be very, very important. So just give us a sense of where we are now in investor psychology on stocks, bonds, real estate, gold. Just going to give us a, a rough idea of where we are in the cycle. Well, I, I mean, I wrote an article last fall, probably around late August, September timeframe, that I, I thought that the market had topped out, uh, the stock market, U.S. stock market topped out, uh, based on a number of indicators. I have a proprietary indicator I use myself based on some chart patterns. Um, then the market made another little mini high. What's disturbing, I guess, if you're a bullish person with regard to the stock market, is that after making that high, the market's been you know fairly weak since then and has not broken out because when it when it first made that breakout, I thought okay, um, it's going to go a little bit higher. It's going to go much higher, and it hasn't done that. And it's I mean if you look at the markets since May of 2015, it's really languished. It really hasn't gone very far. Um, bonds, wow, that's that that's you know the the bond market. You know you don't really have a good transmission of pricing there because you have so much influence from in central banks and so forth. But you know clearly in a, in a bubble there, hard to imagine that you know long term bond prices. Uh, excuse me, long, yeah, long-term bond prices would go any higher, you know, interest rates would go lower there. I mean, you're, you're at an incredible threshold and there's some other points that I bring up in the book as to why you might even question some of the, uh, some of the interest rates that you have right now, not even to mention the negative interest rates that, you know, you briefly mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, you mentioned gold, uh, gold is something that I talk about in the book because it, it is money. It's it's always been the ultimate money. Um, but there, that gold will have has had deflationary pressures applied to it as well. Very good. All right, we're going to take another break. This is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Jim Mascara. His book is called Escaping Oz: Navigating the Crisis. Uh, he is also the principal at Sentinel Consulting, helping small businesses restructure their debts. 
You can find out more at his website, jimmascara.com. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. What if every day was a good day for business? Because every decision you made was the best choice. What if you could receive regular input from credible sources and could acquire all the precise information you need exactly when you need it so you can make the right decision every single time? Because There's More challenges you to make better decisions. Join Laura Ellis every Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific, and 2 p.m. GMT on the Voice America Business Channel and learn how to think differently for better decisions, better business. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour, Jim Mascara, who's got a book out called Escaping Oz, Navigating the Crisis. Uh, You can find out more at his website, jimmascara.com. So basically, Jim, so here we are. We're in this gigantic, uh, over-leveraged, deflationary bubble. We've got the Kondratiev wave, the Elliott wave. Uh, Stocks are overvalued. Bonds are overvalued. Gold may be somewhat overvalued. Real estate is overvalued. Um, So you've got us really scared here. And your last chapter is called Planning for the Future. So let's plan for the future in the situation you've set us up with here. So uh, the first thing you say to do is to do conservation. So what do you mean by that? Well, you know, we, we've been a you know very consumer-oriented society. Uh, obviously, our being a, the position that we've been as the world's reserve currency has allowed us, obviously, to consume more than we would have otherwise. Uh, we have not our, – our tax policies are really structured around spending and not saving. I think that needs to turn around so we would encourage more capital formation. Um, you know, but what, what do you do? Savers get zero on their money today. Where would you put well, the savers? So, so, so that so that gets back to what I was saying earlier. You know, when you need to have the Federal Reserve, you know, kind of get out of of some of this interest rate manipulation policy. I mean, everything is so distorted now. And as you mentioned, yeah, savers are being, including myself. I mean, I'm I'm being completely punished because I I can't have money in the bank. I mean, I I do have money in the bank, but I'm not getting the return on it. So we, we need to we, we need to move towards you know to a, towards a conservative measure. And and people, are, by, by the way, I mean, it, you you mentioned earlier about negative interest rates in those countries. Where there's negative interest rates. Japan is an example. What's been flying off the shelves in Japanese hardware stores? Safes. Uh, safes. Safe. Yeah, so, so people yes. are uh, people are conserving. I mean, that that's a seminal world example right now of conservation at its finest, which is people saying, "Okay, fine, I'll put the cash. I'll just keep it in, in a safe in my house." That's the ultimate in conservation. So, you would say if the Federal Reserve was not and other central banks were not manipulating rates, they would be much higher. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and think about think about this for a second, Jordan. I mean, right now, uh, you know, the the ninety percent, if you will, uh, has so much more of their their wealth 
tied to pensions. And those pensions uh, assume that, okay, we're going to get, what, 6 7% return on our money because yeah. that's what we need. Well, guess what? They're not getting that, and, and some of them are greatly underfunded and so forth. So, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, you, you have to have some conservation to plan for the future because otherwise you're not going to have a future. So the next thing you talk about is less reliance on government promises, and certainly the pensions are one of them, but people are expecting to get Social Security and Medicare and VA benefits and subsidized health care. What's going to happen when government can't afford these promises? Well, and I, unfortunately, we probably don't have enough time to do this justice, but I do have a chapter that I would like to direct people to in the book, which is what should government be? And I think when you when you read that chapter and you just need to ask yourself a question, what what, sh, what should government's role really be? I mean, is, is health care a right? Um you know, is, is old age pension a right? I, you know, social security. If you, if you answer those questions, then, you know, you start with a blank sheet of paper and say, okay, here's everything I think government should do for me or for this country. And if you don't think it should be there, you know, then that gets taken out. But if you do think something, if you think government needs to do something for you, then you also have to realize that there's a cost for that. And we've never really accounted, you know, accurately or honestly for those costs. So it's just been basically adding up debt. I mean, a lot of these pensions, uh, these state pension funds are underfunded by trillions of dollars. What's going to happen? I mean, they just have to raise taxes dramatically or they're going to default on the promises. What is going to happen when they just can't afford to pay these things anymore? So one of the things I, I, I've said, I said in the book, and I actually told a, a friend, a couple friend of mine that they're actually residents of the state of Illinois. Um, I told them this probably five or six years ago. I said, you know, when you're planning for your retirement, Take whatever uh, retirement benefit you think you're going to get and cut it in half, and then try to try to manage your future budgets around that. And if you can do that, you know, then you're probably ahead of the game. I don't think that in the future that you're going to get the benefit that you think. You know, if if you're in a defined benefit plan, let me qualify that 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 you're going to get the exact benefit that that you think you're going to receive because politically. Um, there's going to be a generational clash here, which says, okay, you know, these retiring boomers or, you know, people like me, they're generation X, you know, we know that state and local, you know, local governments have promised you this, but you know, we don't have the taxing power, you know, or the, the economic growth to do that. So something's going to give, right? So the yeah. question is, you know, who politically wins that battle? And your next one is political responsibility. So you have the candidates running around promising more infrastructure spending, not touching entitlements. Uh, free tuition, all kinds of wonderful things. What has happened to political responsibility in the environment we've talked about here? Uh, I, I think it's probably. I think we're somewhat devoid of that. Um, what I do like about this election is that you have you you had three candidates, uh, in my opinion, with with Mr. Trump, you know, Dr. Carson and Bernie Sanders, that really didn't fit the mold of the parties under which they ran, but they had to run under those parties, you know, for fundraising, et cetera. But I think, I hope that, you know, the, the, the aftermath of this election will bring about um, kind of a broader thought about really introducing other ideas. And if those ideas manifest as a third political parties, but I mean really strong third political parties that, you know, at least start this dialogue that we need, I think that would be very good. You also talk about preparing the elderly. Uh, a lot of people, I think the latest numbers I heard, 40% of the people receiving Social Security retirement income it's their only source of income. They have not saved a dime beyond that. So what's going to happen to the elderly who are depending on Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, all these other programs? 
So I know that there have been a number of social security, social security reforms that have been proposed, you know, some of them means tested and so forth. Uh, my, my suspicion is, is that, again, if you're going to get serious about that, you're going to have to do something where, say, you're going to draw a line and say, okay, maybe these people, you know, we, the Social Security, let's not forget, it's a covenant with, with the people and says, you know, you're going to, we're going to take care of you. Um, but maybe moving forward, you know, new entrance into the plan as opposed to it being a defined uh, benefit plan, maybe it turns into a defined contribution plan. Uh, I, I, again, certainly not enough time to, you know, <laughs> to fix that in, in the, in the scope of this conversation. But, yeah. um, I mean, we, we know how important entitlements are going to be to reforming government budgets. Then you talk about sound money. You think we should bring back the gold standard and not have fiat currency anymore? Uh, if, as long as you have fiat currency, you will always have, and, and, and I don't like to use the word always and never, but I believe that in this case, I can confidently use the word always. If you have fiat currency, you will always have the opportunity for you know large uh, credit bubbles, large economic swings, um, better, better chances of political, or excuse me, of income and wealth inequality, and of course, less fiscal discipline on the part of government. Uh, Whatever you bring that back as, you know, whether it's a full hundred percent, whether it's, you know, it's a fractional amount where maybe you have 20 percent. I, I don't know what that number is. And again, that's just something that needs to invite a lot of discussion, because right now you don't have anything that that can that regulate economic behavior, if you will, because in theory, you can create all this money at will. And once you do that, again, it goes towards cones, special interests, uh, you know, favored parties, et cetera. Well, it's not theory. It's actually what's happened, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you talk about loans and debt. So uh, in a deflationary environment, you want to be a lender, not a borrower. What is going to happen to borrowers who can't afford uh, the debts they've taken on? Um, there'll be massive restructuring, uh, you know, if it can be orderly, or there'll be, uh, you know, significant defaults. Uh, so it, 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 you should be very careful about who you lend money to if you're a lender. I mean, you know, in, in a deflationary environment, you know, you will have, uh, you know, cash is king, right? So the, the more cash you have, the, you know, the bigger bargains that you can pick up, you know, whether that's going to be stocks, bonds, you know, real estate, collectibles, whatever. So in about two minutes we have left, kind of summarize the situation we're in. What difference is going to make if people take your advice with what's coming versus going along blithely without knowing about all, all, all that we've talked about for the last hour? I think a lot of it's going to depend on the, you know, the political situation in this country. Um, certainly, this election, the next election, maybe the one after that. Uh, we're we're moving through a, a, you know, the the end of a cycle here, and actually, we're in, in the the next cycle. Uh, how politicians handle it, how people handle it, uh, you know, the the, the social uh, strife that may result uh, as a result of you know how you progress through this crisis is really important. I I do want to mention though that in that last chapter we were just covering, I talk about you know. Focusing on on smaller community units, which I think is going to be really really important, because instead of looking for you know Washington or you know in Europeans' case Brussels to solve these problems, I think it needs to be uh, looking at it more from a smaller community organization, and what you know to to allow people to to kind of take care of themselves first on in a, in a smaller governing unit, because if if they keep relying on you know whether the wizards in the Federal Reserve or the wizards in government, I, I think I think they may be in for a letdown. So it's a rough time coming up, but you say there are solutions that people can take if they learn how to play the game. Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, again, I think there's definitely pain to be felt, but I, I think the sooner you attack some of these problems, the better it will be later.
and we've been delaying them. We have not been attacking them sooner. Yeah. Worldwide, they've been growing for many, many years, right? That's a fact. Very good. All right, well, I think we have a very good situation, a very good understanding of what's about to happen here. Uh, my guest has been Jim Mascara. His book is called Escaping Oz, Navigating the Crisis. Uh, he is a principal at Sentinel Investing, which helps small businesses restructure their debt. There's going to be a lot of that coming up, clearly, what we've talked about here. Uh, and you can find out more about him at his website, which is jimmuscara.com, spelled M-O-S-Q-U-E-R-A. Thanks so much for being a guest on The Money Answer Show, Jim. Thanks a lot for having me, Jordan. Thanks again, and we'll be back next week with another edition of The Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.